Nowadays, it seems almost every menswear brand sells their product online. Do you want it? No worries, it's online. Not in stock? Eh, find it online. But in early 2010, hardly any menswear brand sold their products online, and few thought it could even be done. It was hard, and many people tried and just couldn't make it happen. Then along came Mr. Porter. My guest this week is the managing director of Mr. Porter, Toby Bateman. Toby and I discuss his early life coming up as a fashion buyer, how Mr. Porter began, and how they convinced some of the world's biggest luxury brands to sell online. Hint, it involved an iPad. Last but not least, we discuss how Mr. Porter continues to evolve with brands like Mr. P and Toby's outlook on the future of menswear. Mr. Toby Bateman, you're on the pod. How you doing? Good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. How are you? Great. Great. This is a this is a this is a big honor. You are, I think you are Mr. Porter. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you you are the 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 longest tenured Mr. Porter employee. You're the managing director, which is like you know the, the U.S. term for the CEO. Um, it's I. It is a huge honor. Like Mr. Porter, and I, I've said this when we talked to your colleague Jeremy. It has it has changed the way that I shop, experience, and you know, as we'll talk about on this, I would say the way every single male consumer uh, and female has has learned to understand what shopping is in the digital age. So, well, thank you very much. It's, yeah, it's a bit overwhelming to, <laughs> to be sort of faced with that, accused with of that. But, no, yeah, well, your reputation I'll, I'll precedes you. you. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> um, so there's there's a number of stuff I want to talk to you today. I mean, you mainly your your history and buying and and your kind of career and how you worked your way up and then you know and obviously where what's happening with Mr. Porter right now um you know especially as we're all you know as consumers starting to experience um products and things differently you know and going from you when you were in a position where you were the buyer and you wouldn't buy anything with logos on it to how fashion has also kind of embrace the logo. So there's a ton of stuff to talk about, but we'll, we'll jump right in. Um, first off, from the sound of your voice, obviously, I take it you're from London or the UK. Yep. Yep. I'm from uh, about now south of London in Surrey. In Surrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what was that like? Growing up in Surrey? Yeah. Um, I think probably um, typically uh, middle class British um, you know, fairly, um, you know, fairly unedgy, um, but at the same time, probably quite um, idyllic in in some ways. I sort of was in the countryside, and I kind of had, you know, a few mates up the road, and we used to ride our BMXs around, and you know, oh, really, and uh, sort of lose ourselves in the sort of British countryside, and and do things like that. And I kind of went to a fairly. Um, sort of middle of the road um school um who where well, I managed to get away with doing as little as I could for pretty much my entire school career and right. uh you know <laughs> excelled at being decidedly average yeah uh, same yeah yeah good good well done yeah <laughs> <laughs> well cuz surrey now at least from from other friends of mine they're like there's quite a few people that will they kind of build their country house in surrey i mean it's it's turned into this escape from you know other friends i mean i i worked in the music business for a bit um and i know there's some some big musicians that have kind of migrated there because it's like i don't know if it's the equivalent of uh westchester versus new york but there's mm-hmm. this sort of city you know, take the train into the city, but chill in, in Surrey in the evening. It's a bit like that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. You know, I lived in, uh, in London or central London for about 15 years. So I sort of grew up there, migrated into London in my early twenties as everyone did. And, uh, you know, got work and built a life and got married, had a couple of children and then realized that, uh, in order to afford a house that was bigger than a shoebox in London, I um, was either going to have to win the lottery or, uh, or commit some sort of crime. Right. Um, so instead of those two things, we moved, we moved to Surrey and, um, and you, you, I think at some point in your life, you, uh, you choose sort of quality of life and a bit of space and 
it's, it's good to be able to escape. It's quite handy because it's like about an hour from London and I still yeah. get to work in London every day. So I kind of have the best of both worlds. Um, yeah, the, the commute life, right? Yeah, I mean, do yeah. you, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I know a lot of people like for them, their commute in the morning is, you know, I know a lot of people are like into meditation and stuff now, but mm. um, some folks I know, like that is their, that is their quiet time. That is their solace, you know, the, the hour, 90 minute well, commute. Do you know, for me, it's the opposite. It's actually my work time because, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> seriously, because uh, between, you know, pretty much between nine and six, okay, Monday to Friday, if I'm in the UK, my day is just packed back to back with meetings and i literally don't get time to read emails answer emails think about anything so having an hour at the beginning of the day and the end of the day to sort of stand or you know yeah. sit if you're lucky on the train and <laughs> uh and deal with that is is probably what allows me to actually cope with the uh with the workload oh geez yeah yeah you want to, oh i actually do you want to know something sl- slightly bizarre about where i where i live in sorry please um, uh, I bought the house that I grew up in. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause I was going to say you, you were saying that you were from Surrey, but then as we were talking, you were like, oh yeah. you know, in that you're saying you live in Surrey. Yeah. So wait, how does that happen? Cause that, that's pretty, it's that's quite pretty strange, fantastic. isn't it? I know. I, I think I must need some sort of therapy. <laughs> no, no, this is amazing. <laughs> I obviously had such an idyllic and happy childhood that I needed to, you know, buy my old house back. Uh, I don't know how it happened. We, we, we moved out of London you know, quite a few years ago and um, we were living in a rented house and I was trying to find a house to buy and I couldn't find one that I really liked that had sort of the right setup or had sort of big enough rooms but also a decent car, all that kind of thing. And yeah. then, um, yeah, very coincidentally, I, I, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I mean, this isn't such a positive story, although it was absolutely fine in the end, but a friend of ours um, was ill and had been uh, operated on uh, by this, by this surgeon and we were having a drink with these people one Christmas just after her treatment and she was getting better and it was all positive and conversationally she said the name of this guy and I said gosh and he had a very I won't say his name but he had a very specific name it was a double barreled name okay. and um, I said um, he's the guy that bought my parents house about 18 years ago and uh, so I sort of figured out and I asked her, I said, well, how old do you think he is? And she said, oh, he sort of must be nearly 65. So I figured, well, he's probably close to retiring. So I wrote him a letter and said who I was. I'd grown up in the house and I was looking for somewhere to buy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and um, sort of quite cheekily said, I don't suppose you've, you know, you've ever thought about selling the house. And he wrote back within a week and said, this is so bizarre because we've been thinking about moving, but we've done nothing about it. Um, we've loved living here. We'd love you to move back in with your family. Come around, see what, you know, see what they think. And, and within a few weeks, we'd sort of, you know, agreed a price. And so now my son sort of sleeps in my old room. My daughter sleeps in my older brother's old bedroom. I'm in my parents' room, which is perhaps a bit weird. Uh, so we've sort of, yeah. So it's kind of a strange, but, um, oddly uh, comforting um, feeling. It's just, I moved back into my own. We completely changed it. But anyway, I don't yeah, I was going to say, hopefully you... a slightly odd topic to dwell on for your... Uh... No, that's fantastic. I yeah. think that, you know, that, that also says a bit about you and that uh, you really value the past. Mm. I think there are certain types of people in this world and some people, you know, and I, I wouldn't segment everyone into two separate things, but I think some people they're constantly focused on what's next in the future. And if it already happened, it doesn't matter. But I think just the fact that you thought, oh, you know what? Like, I wouldn't mind going back to the home that I grew up in also says that you must have had a relatively good experience for you to embrace that. Well, well I did, but I think more than anything, I, I, I actually feel it was opportunistic. It was just, I used my connection and my knowledge of this house and that guy and his circumstance to get myself a house because um, because I, I really there was there was no sort of deeply sort of hidden desire to kind of to do that. Oh sure, um, it's fate. It, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, I believe in. I believe things happen, you know, for a reason. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, for sure. mm. That's fantastic. Well, what brought you to London the first time? In in terms of you like growing up. Mm. Um, well, I I arrived in London uh, when I was about. 21, 22, okay. um, having 
having left school, I, I, I left school and didn't go to university, <clears throat> which was quite a controversial thing to have done then, and it's an even more controversial thing to do now because mm. uh, because everyone uh, you know you know wants and, and rightly so to you know to to do further education. Um, and I didn't actually opt out of it. What happened was I, I, I left school and, and I think I had a university place to do business studies. Mm. And I came to a very last minute decision that I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something more creative. So I decided that um, for one reason or another, I don't know why, um, I decided I was interested in film. So I decided I, I wanted to um, do film studies. Uh, so I kind of investigated this for a while and thought, well, I could take a year, I can take a gap year. Yeah, which um, is very normal. Very normal. Do a few things to try and sort of bolster my application to uh, go to university and study film. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would all be fine. So I kind of set about doing that and I managed to get myself a, a job at a production company in, in Soho in London uh, as, a, as a runner getting paid i think that's actually nothing i don't think i was paid at all it was just for experience yeah um and uh and part of that i i got take i spent about a month in shepperton studios working on a on a shoot and sort of you know doing call sheets and making everyone coffee and just generally being a dog's body and getting pizzas at lunchtime and all that <laughs> sort of stuff uh and it was great i loved it i thought oh this is this is fantastic this is exactly you know i'm i'm on the right path to you know get some insight into this business and then I can make an application to university for next year and go and do that. Um, and then um, my brother called me, my older brother, and he was living in Prague at the time um, for, for one reason or another. And he was, and he was working for this um, company that had uh, bureau de change um, businesses. Mm -hmm. So something very sort of like dull um, across Europe. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've just finished this job at this production company. I don't know what I'm going to do next. And he said, well, I've got a job in Paris if you want it. But if you want it, you've got to come out next week wow. um, working in one of these bureaus. And I, I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, what else are you going to do? You're going to come to Paris, take the job. Um, I've got a, there's, I know someone that's got a spare room. Uh, you can enroll in, uh, in college and um, sort of improve your French and just sort of, you know, do something different whilst sure. you're sort of waiting to get. So I did that. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, so I got on this train. Um, actually, I didn't get on the train because I don't think the, the tunnel, I, I flew to Paris. It was a couple, literally oh, one or two days after my 19th birthday, pre channel. Um, and, uh, yeah, and kind of got to Paris and met this, uh, Danish girl that was living in this flat who was my brother's girlfriend's at the time best mate. And so she had a spare room and I moved in and, uh, yeah, it was, it was all sort of totally random. So within the space of a week, I had sort of gone from, you know, living with my parents in Surrey, trying to get into the sort of film business or trying to sort of get myself on a path for sort of, uh, sort of uh, film education and, and then I was living in Paris and I enrolled in the Alliance Francaise which is a language school in Paris and I used to go there every morning and do a few hours of class and then every afternoon I was working in these change bureaus and I kind of met all these people that were working for this company and anyway. Um, well it sounds I, like you did go to university, you just had a different way of going to it. Yeah, I, and I think that's the way that I look. I look back on it actually, yeah. is that because it didn't. Then it didn't stop there. I ended up actually spending two years in France because I had such a good time. I didn't come back. Of course. Um, and then, um, uh, and then after that, um, the, the, the company kind of changed hands. And um, one of the great things in those days, I don't know if it's the same now, about European employment law was that if you didn't take your vacation, your holiday time, mm -hmm. uh, you would get paid for it. And I basically hadn't taken a day of holiday through that whole period because oh, nice. you know I was really young. You sort of yeah, I was just, I was vacation? In Paris, just having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I left, and they paid me all of my holiday. So I had like a couple of grand in the bank, and um, and I persuaded a couple of my uh, old old school friends to um, sort of ditch what they were doing and go travelling with me. So we, the three of us, went travelling, um, and we spent a year away doing this sort of usual circuit. We came to America actually first, which is slightly un unusual thing. We came to New York and 
and did one of those. And you're like, ah, eh, next. <laughs> well, this was, <laughs> no, yeah, when was this? This was in 19, um, when was I'm trying to figure it out, 94 maybe? Okay. Uh, yeah, 94, just after my 21st birthday. So the, we, we were on the, and we were cleaning up at that time. Yes. Rebuild. Yeah, yeah, it was cleaning up, but not totally clean. There was still like an edge in, in sure. New York. I remember we were staying in a hostel way uptown on like 110th Street or something. And um, uh, the, one of my mates who I was with sort of got up in the morning because, you know, had the usual wake up at 5 a.m. and thought he'd sort of walk up the street and go to a deli and get, and he got, he got held up. Oh, held Lord. up inside the deli and oh, had, his, had his wallet nicked <laughs> and came back in that was our sort of welcome to america um <laughs> anyway so so um yeah so so i spent sort of my three year first three years of my post-school life either living in france and working and sort of meeting all these you know very fun and interesting and diverse people who were working in this business or who i just who weren't working there but i'd met um, in other ways, uh, and then you know, plus a year of, of of traveling around the world, doing a bit of work, stopping in Australia, getting a job, Jeez. Of, you know, all of that kind of thing. Um, and then I arrived home at the age of twenty-two, and having a, and a bit. you know ten years' experience at traveling around the world, seeing different people, yeah. seeing how they live, yeah. but not having a not having a qualification, um, That's and, fine. and having two parents who were saying to me what are you going to do for the rest of your life? You've sort of spent the last three years bumming around. You need to um, you know, think about what you're going to do for a career. That's, that's a fair question. Which was a fair question. And that sort of leads me to how I then ended up moving to London because uh, one of those guys who I was traveling with, his brother was a, was a buyer, a fashion buyer at a department store in ah, London okay. called the House of Fraser. Yeah. And so he uh, it didn't get me a job, but he got me on a sort of recruitment day like an assessment day where mm-hmm. about 20 people went uh to uh apply for what was then called a department assistant which was uh, kind of like a buyer's admin crossed with a merchandiser's admin sort of right. bottom rung of the ladder in the buying office at house of fraser and um and that and that's how i kind of got into this business basically so because here's the interesting thing you know as first off as a buyer um, I think it is one of the most difficult and underappreciated jobs, uh, period, ever. Because, um, you know, I say that as someone who tried to do it and has, you know, I have a few friends who are buyers. And I think it's really easy for most people to maybe buy for themselves. But when you're a buyer, I think the general public has this idea that basically you're traveling around in, you know, fancy cars, going to fashion shows, glad handing people, and then just picking a bunch of stuff. When really, you're in your hotel room, you're crunching numbers, you're trying to make sure that stuff's sold, you're trying to make sure that your, you know, your customer is, uh, is appealed to, and that you're also educating them as well as encouraging them to buy what's there. And that is such a big pill to swallow. How was that experience for you when, I mean, did you already have an idea of what a buyer was or like, you know, did you get this rude awakening or what was that like? I understood a bit about what it was from, um, from this guy that had sort of was my connection into that first job. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something that, you know, I certainly learned on the job and learned over a number of years. I had that sort of passion, if you like, for, for, for the business. Sure. Um, I, you know, I considered myself to be uh, a creative person, but I also um, thought that I could deal with the sort of the, the, the numeric side, the, the business side. Right. And so it was, it was quite a considered step for me. I didn't just sort of, I didn't pluck it out of the, out of the air. Um, but, but you're right, it's, you know, people do think, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's just sort of a fancy job and, it's, uh, and, yeah. and all you're doing is uh, all, of, all of those nice bits. But it is an incredibly pressurized job, uh, both creatively and uh, numerically, uh, because you know, you're, you're, you're gambling with someone else's money when you're employed as a buyer for a, for a store group. And there's a huge amount of trust that those mm-hmm. people are putting in you. They, you know, depending on the size of the business, you might be spending anything from 
you know, a hundred thousand pounds to a million to ten million to fifty million. You know, so you know when you're when you're starting out as a as a buyer in the career, you I was always like really conscious of that, and you know, mm. and, and it was you know to a degree quite nervous. I think when in the in the first instance when I started, you know, when I got given the sort of Socks, socks or something to buy. I, mean, right. I think the first category I got given to buy was socks. Um, but um, but I, I I loved the creativity. Uh, that first job actually I um, I became I was known label buyer. So that was my that was my training. I was working for this for that for that business developing two of their different own label mm-hmm. brands, and I kind of you know, worked my way up from being that department assistant to being a assistant buyer to being a buyer and and. You spent so I spent the first eight years of my career, in fact, uh, working in that kind of an environment, and I loved the uh, the process of developing a, a product from being in a store in New York or in London or in Paris, looking for inspiration, buying samples, going to uh, fabric fairs, going to PV, yeah, um, and working with the design team to put drawings together, sending drawings and spec sheets out to. Uh, Hong Kong in those days, which is where sort of most of the uh, of the sourcing happened, and then spending weeks on end in in Hong Kong with a suitcase on my lap in the in the back of a taxi, going from one factory to another factory to another factory, you know, looking at their executions of the garments that we'd sort of sent out to develop. I mean, and this is like I still think it's a fascinating job oh, it's, now, and it's I would, incredible. I would recommend it to to anyone and then when everyone and when if anyone says to me oh, have you got any tips for being a buyer and then my first tip is start in product development because you know it's the most important thing and it will teach you and it taught me um all of those details in terms of the importance of the fabric uh to the weight of the fabric for a particular garment versus another garment um cut of course mm-hmm. you know spec sheets you know i used to when i was a junior buyer i used to measure all the garments when they came in from the factories and sort of it, oh, for like quality it, control quality control for mm-hmm. sort of tolerance and if like measure anyway um so so and i don't i think that that never really left me that that period of my time of really sort of getting into the the, the detail of how things are made and we did everything from woven shirts to jersey to knitwear uh, to, to tailoring. Um, and, and I loved it. That's incredible. Mm. So from there you jump from house of Frazier to where was your next place? Uh, I went from there to Harvey Nichols, which is, a you know, well, you know, was, it, was certainly sort of a well-known London department store. Yeah. I mean, incredibly it's, prestigious. Yeah. Um, and I think so, Elton John used to shop at Harvey Nichols and he would like buy the floor at a time. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone used to shop at Harvey Nichols. It was, I mean, it was um, yeah. in the day. Did you ever, I mean, it's, it's probably before your time, but in the sort of abs- absolutely fabulous sort of heyday in the, in the 90s, I mean, Harvey Nichols was the coolest store in London. Because, yeah. Well, that's what I was also know, trying to say is like yeah. you, you go from being House of Fraser, which was great, but yeah. to probably the top buying spot in the entire uk yeah which was um yeah which was phenomenal so i was really excited about that and by then i'd made the jump from being from doing own brand to doing branded buying and of course at harvey nichols it was all branded buying because they didn't have their own label um so that was a yeah that was a pivotal moment i I think um for me in my career getting to such a prestigious store group um and then uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't there for that long. I was only there for about a year and a half, and then I moved to Selfridges. Yeah, um, which you know because I was you know because I was asked to, to to move, and I spent about six and a half years working at Selfridges. Um, started as the buying manager on formal wear and accessories, and then ended up sort of running. Most of the menswear business, like shoes and casual wear, contemporary designer, um, and and that was a that was a fascinating uh, place to be because Selfridges by then had been sort of completely rebranded and given the most immense new energy. Mm. Um, originally, from a guy called uh, Vittorio Radici, who um, who 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 was who took it from basically being an old-fashioned department store to being a really 
cutting edge uh, department store. And I joined just after the Western family mm. uh, bought it. And they were, I think, you know, trying to maintain that, that energy and that excitement and that cutting edge, which it still is today. I mean, they still own it. Um, but at the same time, we're sort of trying to manage it a little bit more tightly as a business. Um, and um, yeah, so that was, they, they, that was a really sort of fascinating sort of six or seven years I had there. Yeah. I mean, what sort of skills were you really glad that you learned when you were doing, you know, private label or own label buying that you were able to bring to branded label buying? I think it's the appreciation of, of quality. So looking at, I could assess a brand and I could go into a showroom and say, how much do you want for that shirt? And if they said 250 quid, I could look at it pretty easily and say, it's, you know, that's not a 250 quid shirt, that's <laughs> 150. And that's, right. that's important because as a buyer, what you're doing is you're making the choice on behalf of the customer, right? You're, that, that's what your job is. You are, you are pre-editing, you're, you're selecting the brands that the store sells and you're selecting the items, of course, within that brand that you're going to offer to your clients. And that's why, uh, that's why people go into certain places or of shop course. at certain places. You know, Mr. Porter, for, you know, for one, of course. So then, you know, you basically get the equivalency of like your PhD in buying and understanding of fashion. And Mr. Porter comes along. What was that like? Because I believe at the time, this is with, when it was a very experimental idea. Mm. Well, um, it, 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 all, it all happened quite randomly. Um, I, uh, I was in Milan. It was June 2010. I think the the day before Milan, or I think actually just before Pitti, which was of, of course you know a few days before Milan. I'd been in I'd been in uh, in Pitti for, uh, for for work, and um, the announcement about Mr. Porter had come out. Mm. They timed it to 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 be sort of right at the beginning of the menswear season because they kind of obviously wanted to get a bit of uh, buzz some, going. Yeah, get some cred with so it. Yeah. Yeah, so it was sort of the talk of the talk of that uh, of, of pity and that sort of thing. And it was Saturday morning, uh, first shows of Milan, I think one of the first shows, Calvin Klein on Saturday morning. And I found my seat and I looked next to me uh, and the note on the seat said, Natalie Massenet. So um, I sat down uh, a couple of minutes later I'd never met Natalie before, but obviously I knew who she was. And uh, so she comes along, big smile, sort of, hi, I'm Natalie, shakes hands. Hi, I'm Toby. Nice to meet you. I said something like, you know, congrats on the, on the Mr. Porter business. Yeah. Uh, that's exciting. Something sort of pretty throwaway like that. And um, she immediately said, oh, I'm really worried about it. I don't know anything about menswear. And I said, oh, it's not that complicated. We like blue shirts and you know, <laughs> brown brogues. Um, and, um, and anyway, it was, so it was sort of, it was very casual, but we, but we kind of engaged. And then I think a couple of shows later, I think it was the Burberry show. So we we're literally talking probably two hours later that day. Um, we find ourselves sat next to each other again. Uh, and then she, and then she's saying, Again. "Oh well, oh, what's you know, what what's you wearing? Where are your shoes from?" And you could see she was sort of, you know, she sizing she was, you up. She was, well, I don't know if she was sizing me up, but she was, well, you know, that later on, much later, probably a year later, she 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 then admitted to me that she had been standing in that sort of pre, you know, before the fashion shows, everyone sort of mills around for about. 20 minutes sort of chatting right. and stuff like that and um and she apparently had been standing there with um uh with, with someone a, a pr guy from 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 london and was looking at around the room you know uh for, for potential employees obviously for mr porter oh okay yeah, yeah so um so it did as it transpired she she sort of arranged for that seating plan to be as it was whoa i know it's a bit freaky isn't it Got a, you had a lot of decisions predestined for you. Oh well, I don't know about that, but um, <laughs> but but yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, you know, things happen. You know, it's just sure. I, you know, I consider I just very lucky. I think. Um, yeah, so that was how that was how I kind of got introduced to Natalie, and then um, obviously very soon after that, I sort of had a proper conversation with her, and 
And you joined on as Mint's buying. And I joined as the, yeah, as the buying director. This episode of Blamo is brought to you by Burrow. Burrow is reinventing the furniture space from shopping to shipping to living to moving. They believe high quality furniture should be more accessible. That's why you can easily customize your own sofa online and have it shipped fast and free within that same week. Set up your burrow in minutes. I seriously set mine in less than five. It's the most comfortable chair in my apartment and is scratch and stain resistant so I can live worry free. Why is it so comfortable? Because every burrow is exactly 17 inches off the ground. It's the average knee height. And it's filled with their proprietary foam that is super supportive yet super cozy. Also, Burrow recently got named one of Time's best inventions. By the way, stop for a second. When was the last time a furniture company got named for best invention? They're doing something right over there. Right now, Burrow is offering Blamo listeners $75 off their first purchase. Visit burrow.com forward slash Blamo and enter promo code Blamo at checkout. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash Blamo to get $75 off your first purchase. Thanks again to Burrow for supporting the show. When we, when we actually got to the point where Natalie asked me to come over and do this, um, no one at that point was retailing high-end menswear online. It wasn't, it wasn't happening. Net-a-Porter had been successful, but people weren't doing it with menswear. Oh, yeah, you're exactly right. And, so, and there was this perception, even then, in 2010, there was this perception that guys were never going to do that. They needed to touch things. They needed to try things on. Fit was so important. We've all got funny body shapes and... Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, um, there, well, there were a lot of, a lot of, uh, doubters. So, um, so when you combine that with, then we set out on this sort of very clear, uh, mission to create this, uh, this aesthetic of this, this grown up contemporary, um, global, successful, confident man, um, you know, we weren't, um, <laughs> We weren't really making it any easier for ourselves, mm-hmm. so we, we know we could we could have been more obvious. We could have selected more obvious brands. We could sure. have just filled the whole thing up with sort of giant polo pony T-shirts and sort of you know Armani logos or, or whatever yeah. was relevant at the time. But we didn't. We we kind of went the other way, and we would say, um, you know, we I think we launched with about seventy or eighty brands in February eleven. When I joined in, um, in, sem- in September ten. Mm-hmm. I think the buy had been done for about 40 of those brands and most of those 40 were brands that were already working with, with Net-A-Porter and had a, had, right. a, had a men's business. So they, they were able to sort of do the deal. Um, and, and my job was to, to arrive and, and speak to all the brands that I had relationships with and that I knew and that I thought would be right and to go out and, and make the selection and, 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 and do all of those things. Actually, I, I'll jump back like i think you gave an excellent answer about how what does it look like to try to understand buying in a different age and era with a different platform you mm. know and i think you know how you you ended up answering that was there are some things that's different but there's a lot of things that are the same um well yeah, we, we go ahead well sure. well one of the things see this so one of the things that i thought at the time was really important was i just i didn't want to do everything i didn't want to do the, the usual formula I knew we needed to have some designer, mainline designer brands. I knew we needed to have some sort of luxury uh, classic brands. I knew we, we needed to tick the box of the sort of the categories as, as, as you might for any kind of multi-brand men's retailer. But one of the things that, I, uh, that we um, really thought was important was to uh, embrace specialist uh, producers of, of things. So, you know, department stores at that time uh, had become so driven, and I'd spent 15 years working for a department store, so I knew I knew this better than anyone. Um, everything, as it has to be, is driven on sort of pounds per square foot. Okay, so if you've got a hundred square meter mat, you know that you need to get a, a revenue of X per per annum off that mat, and if and if you don't, then you know right. you need to change it. And it, and it's brutal when you're working in that sort of environment. Um, and what that had meant, you know, that you know that sort of um, brutal um management of of space and delivering a certain amount of pounds or dollars per square foot um had pushed out smaller brands had pushed out niche brands had pushed out old brands um and of course coming uh into an e-commerce business i didn't have that constraint 
you know, at the same time, didn't want to go out and buy hundreds and hundreds of things. But um, you know, having worked in the menswear business for so long, there were things that I just, you know, really um, loved in terms of uh, uh, provenance and heritage and quality. Um, whether it's like John Lobb shoes or Charvet shirts and ties right. or Lock and Co hats or um, you know you can call you can there are lots of things that you can call um, specialist Converse sneakers uh, sure. Ray Bans um, Le- Levi's jeans um, all of these types of things which are sort of just so iconic uh, and I just really believe that those you know those are the kinds of things that regardless of who you are as a man you could be. A twenty-year-old, you can be a seventy-year-old. If you're really into your menswear, then you're then you're going to appreciate a good. You know, you understand why a Turnbull and Asa shirt is a good shirt. You understand why an Edward Green shoe is a good shoe, and uh, and we really wanted to inject that kind of feeling right at the beginning of the of the business to differentiate what we were doing and to create this this thread of of quality through uh, th- through the business. Yeah, you know, whilst you know, whilst also appreciating that, you know, Margiela made, you know, great knitwear and Jill Sander had great trousers and, um, you know, all of those kinds of things that would go around it and, and, and contemporize that, that idea. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I honestly had zero idea about the concept of revenue per, you know, per square foot or square meter, because I mean, you know, it makes a ton of sense now, but I think that that must give you an entire new playing field when you're choosing how to approach a brand. You know, if, if they don't need to, you know, take up that much space, you know, when it's digital, you know, I'm air quoting there, like it, it, can, it can be anything. And I think, you know, because I remember uh, my first experience with Mr. Porter when it launched was the fact that, yeah, you had these brands like a Charvacher. I don't think there was... You can correct me, and I'll double check this, but I don't think there was any place you could get a Charvet shirt online. No, um, no, it just didn't exist. No, and and the only reason that he did was uh, so one of the, one of the missions that I was given when I joined Selfridges going back um, was to get Charvet. Okay. <laughs> there was one place that you could buy Charvet in London at that time, and it was a shop called Connolly. Okay, uh, which now re-exists, but it, it closed shortly uh, thereafter um, because um, Paul Kelly, who I mentioned before, wore Charvet ties. Mm. So in order, to, in order to secure that, I had to travel to Paris, get myself dressed up you know, in the best way I could, and meet uh, Jean-Claude Colbert, who, uh, who owns Charvet. Uh, and first I had to get that meeting, then I had to go over and sort of pass the test. And if you talk to anyone who's had that experience, and there were a number of buyers, I'm sure, from sort of like Bergdorf to Saxe to uh, you know, other, other stores around the world, you know, Jean-Claude is, uh, well, A, a he's a lovely man, but when you, you know, he, he will test you and, and he will not send you, sell you his product unless he believes that you truly appreciate why it's special and how it's special and that you will treat it properly. So I had to go through that process um, with him to get it into Selfridges. Uh, and then, of course, I had to go through the process again uh, to, to get him to agree to Mr. Porter. And when I went over and saw him, um, what I, one of the first things that uh, I did was we got... Um, I, th- I think this is correct. You probably you have to check it, but I believe the iPads came out in 2010. Yes. Like the iPad issue. And uh, I went down to the Apple store in, in, in London, or in the shopping center where we have our, our head office in London, um, shortly after I joined and got myself an iPad and got the, um, uh, the creative team at the time, this is prior to the site launching, to create like a and they, and, they, they, and they created a beautiful presentation of the site. So a mock-up of the landing page, a mock-up of the design rate Z, a mock-up of the product page. Oh, genius. Uh, and, and, and some of this concept, pictures of the, of the packaging. And, and, it was a, you know, and, and that was really sort of the most important selling tool that I had because the business didn't exist, right? So we, I was, the first six months I was traveling around talking to people about a thing that didn't exist. That was a website. That was a website. So, and when you're <laughs> right. talking to people at that end of the market who are so precious about their, and just you know, rightly so, about their brand, 
anyway, so I went over. But of course, fortunately, by then I knew uh, I knew Jean Claude quite well. So um, you know, he 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 just said, "Look, you know, I'll I'll, I'll trust you, but." Don't let me down. Oh God! Uh, so then the pressure becomes even greater because <laughs> yeah, um, now you have pressure from internally because you're half ambassador of the brand, yeah. convincing people who you know. I, I think again at the time, and you had mentioned this too. I mean, it was I would say almost taboo to sell your product digitally. People would think it would cheapen the brand, and you know the challenge that I you know you guys all had was to be like, well, no, 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 like. Or different, where are we are this entirely new shopping experience, and you had to kind of prove that not just to the brands, but also to the customers to trust you with, you know, some of the things were very expensive to, mm-hmm. to purchase online, and I mean, because I remember seeing that I was like a Charvet shirt, like no way, but I, it, it's it's incredible. So I mean, to to for me to step back one second, you're you're walking this line between ambassador and buyer. And, I mean, how how did you how did you like grow that like internally like in your mind like did you did you know this was gonna this was gonna keep going? Shortly after we launched, yes, but yeah. It, but it, but in in the run up, I mean, it was it was sort of highly highly pressurized. We had a huge amount of work to get the get the site ready for launch. Um, and you know, once you've got all you need is one case study, I think, and. Uh, and and some authority in yourself and, and some ex- some experience and th- and then you can convince you know people to to do it. Um, I remember having the same negotiation with Laura Piana, oh. and that was a that was a real milestone for us securing Laura Piana to come onto the site because they, well, I mean in in the you know in the early days of, of the business, there were so many firsts that we managed to to get in terms of. Yeah. On online retailing, you couldn't buy a piece of Laura Piana online uh, when 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 we um, started working with them. And um, I was in Milan. I was at their head office, and I was I had the iPad, and I was going through the presentation. And I had um, one of the one of the senior members of the family there in his in his grey cashmere roll neck and chalk stripe suit, and the commercial people. And um, we were we were sitting in a room, sort of as we are now, across a across a desk from each other. And I was sort of going through this um, this presentation. And halfway through the presentation, the, the Mr. Lord Piano leant over and started swiping on my iPad, left oh, and right. Now he hadn't actually because I don't think he'd seen an iPad at that oh, point. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought he was motioning you onward. <laughs> no, no, no. He wasn't like shooing me out the room. He he just. It was so he was just like physically sort of like enthralled by the sort of the, the the technology and all the things that I was showing him in this presentation, and um, and obviously we came out of that room and and they said yes, and 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 my colleague and I looked at each other afterwards and we said the, the moment that he leaned over and started like started looking through the presentation himself on the iPad was the moment that that we knew it was going right. Um, oh my god that's incredible yeah um, so i mean fast forward now mm. you're you know you become the managing director 2015 i believe yep and now you guys 170 different countries you have what 450 plus brands yeah and i mean and now obviously you are kind of steering the entire ship do you think the fact that you have spent so much time in the industry and also as a buyer and being at different parts of the business, how do you think that helped you um, relate or even empathize with how you're scaling your, the business right now? I think that, I think being there right from the beginning. Because mm-hmm. um, you are, side note, you are the longest tenured Mr. Porter employee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, was has been an enormous help but it was also an incredibly collaborative process from the from the start so because i was the buying director it didn't mean that i didn't get involved in the marketing conversations or mm. uh the the content uh, conversations or um the the 
you know, how the packaging looked. It, it, right at the beginning, everyone sat in, in rooms and developed that all together. Um, so, I th- you know, working like that, in a, and the team was fantastic, and we tried to keep the team throughout the whole sort of growth process um, as small as we can because we've, we've recognized that it's one of the reasons for the, for the success has been that, uh, that we've all had the same vision and shared a passion you know, to achieve what we have done. And the, the, the growth, you know, when you skip forward from sort of year one to year eight, sort of sounds really dramatic having sort of 450 or 500 brands and starting with only 70. But actually it's been, in, in my mind, and I think everyone else's in the company, has been really quite organic. Mm. And the, the, I think a, a, a pivotal moment was after when we'd been doing business for a couple of years. Um, suddenly, we we noticed that uh, our customers and the press and the brands started saying to us, "You've created a really good brand with Mr. Porter," or "Mr. Porter is an amazing brand." And up until that point, they would say, "You are you've got some amazing brands," or. You know, Interesting, and, and, it, and and the concept, yeah, it suddenly started changing, and it and 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 we really didn't realise until that point that actually yeah, they were right. We had, we had, you know, Mr. Porter had become a brand in its own uh, in its own right, and and it was after that that we then started making decisions that were consciously designed to further enhance Mr. Porter as a brand. So that's when we started doing sort of performance sport stuff the grooming category right uh, homewares like really building out the gift and because we started thinking well you know, we need to be a little bit more diverse we need to cater to more elements of our of our customers life rather than just the you know the shoes and the clothing and the accessories interesting yeah i mean so do you think that's affected how you work with smaller brands now? Because you were at a point in your career where you were hoping people would work with you. Do you mean do I pre- do I sort of have a greater appreciation of the smaller brands wanting to work with us now? We're a big company because it was quite hard for us to. Yes, work that was that was a more op- eloquent in, way in, in the opposite direction. Yeah, um, I think so. I think you. Um, there's there's nothing there's nothing worse in this career than a than than an arrogant um, team and particularly uh, and particularly buyers and and sometimes you you do see it happen you do see sort of the power of successful businesses kind of go to the heads of of people and you know hopefully people won't be listening to this <laughs> uh, this podcast saying oh yeah Toby you used to be a really nice bloke but now you know now you're such a big head. Um, so hopefully they don't think that, and, I don't, and hopefully they won't think that about anyone uh, in the company. I think we, you know, make, we, we've, we, we strive and we consciously try and sort of maintain a really, um, uh, a really genuine approach to what we do, and, and, and that all comes down back to, to product. Everyone in the office is really, you know, we're product people first and foremost, and 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 working with Mr. Porter and working digitally bizarrely I think has made us even more product people because the great thing about uh about selling online is the product is is key mm. you're not you know people don't come to Mr. Porter and buy something because it looks beautiful in inside a Prada shop bit because we don't have a Prada shop bit right yeah you know, the, the Prada shirt sits next to the AP shirt, uh, APC shirt sits next to the Burberry shirt. So right. you, you pick the product based on the product more than you do based on the brand in most instances when you're shopping online or when you're shopping on Mr. Porter. And that sort of brings a certain sort of democratic sort of process, I think, to the shopping experience of Mr. Porter. I mean, maybe I'm getting a little, I'm, I'm sort of thinking a little bit too deeply about my own uh, No, I, I would job, but, totally agree with you on all that. I think you guys have really, um, you know, like I said, when we first started, I mean, you have changed how not just, uh, you know, men consume and shop on the internet, but I would say that, you know, you, you, you mentioned case study earlier. I think a lot of brands and businesses have looked at the, the I'm going to air quote, the Mr. Porter model 
um, as like, oh, you know what, maybe we should be selling our stuff digitally. Mm. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm not naming names, but I think there are brands that have tried to sell their product online. And you guys, you all at Mr. Porter may also be selling that same product, but the, <laughs> it, it, it shines on the Mr. Porter because of the experience of not just buying, uh, but browsing, receiving, um, you know, the package, the packaging, I mean, the entire experience from uh, clicking yeah. to, to it being in your home. I mean, it's, it is really incredible. Yeah. And I think that, it, you know, that investment in the attention to every detail is what is, is, what is so important. Yeah. And, you know, don't assume that selling something online is, is easy or it's going to be cheap or your overheads are going to be less because actually it's not. It's probably, it's probably harder in all of those respects. And, and, and the little details, particularly when it comes to service, are so important. The, I, I, I remember from the one listening to your, um, your podcast with, with Jeremy, you mentioned when you first got your first order and it had your name. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that idea to have, have the names um, was, was Natalie's. And it, and it came um, completely out of the blue. We were all in a room looking at the, at, at the white boxes and looking at all the different sizes and saying, okay, well, that one would be good for shirts and that one would be good for, uh, for, for jackets and that would be good for wallets. And, and we were choosing qualities of tissue paper. And it was, you know, we would, and that's the kind of thing that we did. We were all in a room doing this. And, um, and there was a white label that was just, you know, designed to stick the, the black tissue paper together. And Natalie said, oh, wouldn't it be nice if it just said sort of Mr. Bateman on there? And, and that sort of throwaway comment then we all thought oh, yeah, that would be really clever. That would be brilliant because then it would feel like a present to yourself. But, yeah. But to do that, of course, was a nightmare because <laughs> we had to buy, we had to, well, you had to source uh, very specialist printing machines that could do it and could print, print the label in a handwriting font, but oh. also be small enough to put on the packing tables in the warehouse of the people that are packing these things that would so you, you didn't disrupt the entire logistics process. So, you know, but, you know, in hindsight, it's one of the tight, it's one of the small things that has meant so much to so many people who have shopped on the site. So I only say that as an example of how, you know, how important the details are. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because for me, that, that's still, and other people whom I've told to go, you know, shop on, on Mr. Porter, that's usually the thing that they're the most wowed by. Yeah. I mean, personalization it's, is still it's like so one cool. of those sim- what is one of the simplest <laughs> things. It's literally one of the simplest things, but people, yeah, people love it. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to to learn a little bit more about Mr. P because I don't know many, you know, and maybe it, it is more traditional than what I'm assuming because you have a department store that'll have their own private label. But I, I think you guys might be the first online store that ends up making their own private label. How did that happen? Mr. P came about, firstly, firstly we, we knew that there was a, a degree of sort of trust and value in the Mr. Porter brand itself. Mm-hmm. And then as, as, a, as a group of buyers and editors, we spent so much time sort of sitting around lamenting the fact that we couldn't get a trouser that was cut in a certain way or collars on shirts become too small and why had such and such a brand discontinued that shirt when we all loved it or um you know why do we have to you know why do you have to spend two and a half thousand dollars to get a decent suede jacket when you know it's perfectly feasible to get one for about a thousand dollars and those kinds of sort of conversations that would have that would be had sort of over sort of hotel lobby dinners when we're sort of away on 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 sort of the fashion road trips and um so it's the combination of 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 those two things sort of you know having quite a a clear vision of oh if we had our own brand we could make it like this um we could have you know many more items that would be uh available continuously throughout the year because that's one of our constant frustrations is that you go to any brand and um, you know, you're lucky if they've got sort of a white and a blue shirt that they can sort of continue constantly. It's right. this sort of like staple constant reinvention. Yeah. And it's menswear. You don't need to constantly reinvent menswear. We all wear, we all wear white shirts and blue shirts and <laughs> navy blue suits and 
you know, black derbies yeah. all the time. You don't need to change them every six months or even every year. So, uh, you know, that was certainly one of the driving factors behind Mr. P was to create something that would just would have sort of 25 or 30 sort of menswear staples that would just be really good quality, really well priced and available constantly. Um, and, uh, and, and then to, to supplement that with, with sort of smallish, um, for want of a better name, capsule collections that would be genuinely appropriate for the time that they arrived. Um, well, we'd, the, the experience that we had with Kingsman, I think, gave us a bit of confidence that we could effectively launch an, unkno- an unknown brand on Mr. Porter successfully. So if we thought, well, if we can do it with Kingsman, then we can do it with our own brand, Mr. P, um, with, a, with a reasonable um, degree of confidence that customers would, uh, would trust us enough to, to buy it, even if they you know, had never heard of it before. Yeah, I mean, I, I will vouch for the, the Mr. P knitwear. I, uh, I'm serious. I was like, oh, okay, I'll try it. Yeah. It's really, really good. It's good. I'm, this is why I'm wearing. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm wearing a, a roll neck. Um, so, yeah. and the and and the, and the whole and the whole um, Kingsman project. I think it, we, we've we've slightly slightly unintentionally we've we've kind of got into the habit of of doing innovative things. I think it just goes hand in hand with the digital business and and who mr porter has um what, what the business has, has has become and i think that um you know the, the kingsman project is 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 quite a good example of that because before there was a single global online men's retailer like mr porter and kingsman wouldn't wouldn't have worked um matthew vaughan's idea back in 2013 it, it, it kicked off his idea then when he was when he was planning this film which had this sort of rags to riches sort of makeover situation and the Savile Row mm-hmm. tailors being the front of us his his idea to 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 make the the costumes for the movie available to buy just wouldn't have worked if he'd had to work with multiple partners around the world to to, to deliver the, the merchandise. Right. It only, yeah. it only works if you can deal with one business that operates globally. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So when he came to us with that idea, um, initially we were, well, I mean, I think initially we thought, why not? You know, it's going to be, um, it's, it's going to be something that no one else has done. Um, it's going to get a lot of publicity. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, if we sell enough to cover our costs, then, then what have we lost? And we sort of went into it a little bit sort of open like that. But then as it developed, um, and then um, he, he brought Ariane Phillips on board to, to do the costume. And then and he and I and Ariane started working together on, this, on, the, uh, on the costumes and the styles and talking about having double-breasted suits rather than single-breasted suits. And it all just sort of snowballed into something that we all genuinely then thought you know what this is actually pretty unique this is this is we've we've, we've sort of inadvertently created uh, a completely unique brand it's uh i mean it's made up of course but the quality was there because we were making the suits in a great factory in the uk and they were fully canvassed and made to an amazingly high standard we had People like Turnbull making our shirts and Drake's making the ties and cleverly mm-hmm. making the shoes. So there was just like tons of quality and um, and craft and provenance in the in 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 the products that we that we put together. Um, and they were and they were on the face of it very traditional, but but actually cut in a really modern way. And and so we sort of came to the end of the process and realised that we created a new brand that actually stood on its own two feet and 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 was a really you know people would really want to purchase regardless of the uh of of the film but of course then the film yeah you know works as a i mean it's cool to look like colin firth as as a phenomenal uh, marketing tool yeah yeah absolutely yeah who doesn't want to you know look like colin firth (laughs) yeah that's true well some people probably don't but you know he he looks good in the suit yeah he does he cleans up he cleans up nice well yeah 
Oh man. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's that's, that's awesome, Toby. This was very very good. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Good chat with you. Thank you. Hey. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Thank you.